Our reading today is Psalms 105, 1 through 6. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, proclaim his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell about all his wondrous works, boast in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face always, remember the wondrous works he has done, his wonders and the judgments he has pronounced. You, offspring of Abraham, his servant, Jacob's descendants, his chosen ones. Would you pray with me? Great and merciful Father, here in this place we come before you with eagerness and anticipation to hear from your word, to in some way understand or know you in some greater way. That we as a people could be open and and ready and willing to be moved by what you would have for us. Father, I pray that as David comes forward and as he leads us through this psalm, as we consider your faithfulness in, 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 in all of this holds in store for your people, I pray that we would have our ears open and our eyes open by your Holy Spirit. For, Father, as we have sang to you, we've considered your greatness, your goodness, and the mercy that you have applied to us through the blood of Christ. Let that be our motivation enough this morning to lay before you, to call out to you, to cry out to you in our desperation. For wherever we have found ourselves in our lives, Lord, to know your faithfulness and your goodness. Let that be the thing that gives us the peace and the hope we have today and forevermore. Father, I pray that this morning we would be moved in a great and mighty way, that by your Spirit we would be fed in fullness of your word. Father, we love you, we bless you, and we pray that we have proclaimed your name and given you every blessing that we can in who we are. And yet it's all through the power by the blood of Christ. We pray these things and we worship your name. We love you, we bless you, and in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I see I left my notes up here from a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be using those. Uh, I hope your Bibles are open to Psalm 105. Uh, we are continuing in our series. And uh, we had read to you 1 through 6. We're looking at the entire psalm. But I wanted, you to, I wanted us to focus on that one as far as our reading goes. Uh, so last week, David Delmont was here, preached very well through Psalm 104. Um, the way these psalms are, are kind of laying, are being laid out before us uh, is definitely a focus on worship, right? Psalm 103 and 104 both had themes of worship. They were all very similar. Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are also uh, complementary. They're also uh, similar in, in how they are put together and what the focus is on. 
So as we start looking at Psalm 105, we need to ask ourselves the question, who is this, who is this um, written to? Who is the audience? And what was the purpose? So 103 and 104, who was the main subject? Anybody remember? You can speak it out. It's all right. Oh, bless the Lord. What? Oh, my soul. Right, So 103 and 104 talk about different aspects of worshiping, but it's a really personal thing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. We talked about when we were looking at 103, how that was a reminder to ourselves. There are times when I need to remind myself to focus in on who God is and to bless the Lord. And it's like I, I, I sometimes have to do this and kind of scold myself in a, in a good accountable way. David, bless the Lord. I'm going through a tough time. Bless the Lord. Lift up your thanks and gratitude for who he is. So that was really the focus on that. But at this one, there's a little bit of a focus. So who is this being uh, spoken to? Who is the audience? And are we okay to say we're included in this? Because I think sometimes people go, ah, that was Old Testament, talking to the Jews. And sometimes that's absolutely right. But let's look here at who is the focus of this psalm. We find this in verse 6. He says all of these things leading up to this point. And then he says, who am I talking to? You, offspring of Abraham, his servant. Jacob's descendants, his chosen ones. So aren't we talking about the Jews? The Jews were God's chosen people, right? I mean, Jesus' day, the Jews said, we are the chosen people. We are the ones through whom the promise came, to to whom the promise came. And so God is going to deliver us. Well, Paul came along and had something to say about that. Romans chapter 9, he said in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, and this is a quote, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not Uh, Let's see, that is, yes, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. Interesting, let's turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Give you a second because I want you to see it. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 reads, Just like Abraham who did what? Believed. Just like. Like So there's this comparison. Exactly like Abraham who believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. You know then that those who have faith, gets that, those who have faith, those are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance, and this is crazy cool, all right, because this is why we can look back at the psalm and look at it from the gospel perspective. Right? He says right here. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, of which we are all included. That's every non Jew. He would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed. With Abraham, who had faith. All right, so you see the common denominator between Abraham and all of us who believe is faith. 
Abraham believed that God would bring a promise to all nations through him. It's like he saw Jesus, figuratively, I'm not saying he saw him, but, but he saw Jesus, the promise of a, of, a, of a deliverer, of a blesser through his line. And we on this side look back and we see how God brought that promise that he made to Abraham through Abraham and we are the recipients of that. Now just to put a, a exclamation point on that in verse 28, he makes real clear, just so we're not, we're not mistaken. Verse 28, he says, now you two brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. And he's talking to Gentiles. He's writing to the Galatians. They were not Jews. Now, that doesn't mean the Jews are excluded. By no means. Those who believe in Jesus, all who believe in Jesus, Jew, Gentile, everyone who believes in Jesus is a part of the promise and the promise is applied to them. That's why you and I can hear this. We can listen to this and go, praise God, he's talking about me. He's talking about me who believes in Jesus, who has faith. That's praiseworthy that God spoke in advance, spoke well before it ever happened. The gospel is coming. The gospel. So when we look at the Old Testament, starting all the way in Genesis, where we get the first hint in Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Revelation, we get the gospel message. All the way through. We see God move redemption through its course all the way to glorification. I want you to get that. I want you to hold on to that. Because you need to know that when, the, when you've got a psalmist who is talking about the promises of the covenant You're in it. You're in it because we see through the new covenant, through Christ, the fulfillment of the covenant and what plays out beyond that. We're going to look at that. So so when we're looking at this psalm, we're looking at a call to ourselves. Now, uh, this the first 15 verses are in Psalm 96 as David uh, records uh, his proclamation, his song that was sung uh, in First Chronicles 16, where David was going up to Jerusalem. And these were some of the verses, Psalm 96 and verses 1 through 15 of this psalm David used in that proclamation. So this is to go out to everybody. So whereas 103 and 104 are like, hey, you, give praise to God, worship God. Now he's saying, everybody, the whole fellowship, the whole people of God, give praise and worship to God. Now he gives us Nine imperatives, nine things, and I'm going to run through these pretty quickly because we've covered pretty much all of these at one time or another, and they're familiar to you for the most part. But he gives nine things that he includes what can be considered worship, what we should do that is considered worship. Because a lot of times we are limited or we limit ourselves to what we do here on a Sunday morning, and that's sing a song, sing two or three songs, listen to a message, sing another song, and go out the door, and we'll come back to worship next Sunday. But that's not worship. I mean, it is worship. But if that's all it is, then we are missing out on the bulk of worship because most of our lives are lived outside of these walls. So the question that I have for you today is, are you worshiping God fully? Are you worshiping God fully? Because if you're limiting it in one way or another, we're not worshiping him fully. So this is not a shake a finger at you and say how bad you are. It's to hopefully elevate and, and give you the, the, what the word says is ways in which you can, you have an opportunity 
to worship God. So let's look at them, starting back in verse 1. And he's, he gives these nine imperatives. So the first one is give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. We, saw, we talked about it in Psalm 103 that as you count your blessings, as you think about what God has done for you, you turn that into gratitude and you thank him for those things. So you understand that God has been good to you in the good and in the bad. We're pretty good at giving him thanks for the good. We don't do so much on giving him thanks for the bad. All right, we'll look at this a little bit later. But when we look at Romans 8, 28, all those things are working for our good. So if there is something bad in the children of God going on, you can bet God's in it. And it's, it is designed for your blessing. It is designed for your good. So you look at the situation, you go, that stinks. I don't like that. I want out. That's okay. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> we don't have to want it. But when we're in it, it's like, if you have this for me, give it. I remember, I don't know, this thought to come in my head when, when Jesus washed Peter's feet. And Peter was like, no, thank you. You're not going to do that to me. And Jesus says, if I don't do this, you're not going to share in, in, in uh, life with me. And he goes, well, then wash me all over. Right? This is, but it's that in worship. That's the kind of attitude we do need to have. Lord, wash me. Let me, let me experience all of it. And so giving thanks to God for everything is important. Secondly, he says, call on his name. What are we talking about calling on his name? How do you call on God's name? You call on God in prayer. It's calling out to him in various ways. We'll look at some of the the more specifics, but it's calling on God. We worship him when we call on him. We acknowledge that he's here. We acknowledge that he's good. We acknowledge that we want to walk with him. Lord, I want to walk with you. And we walk with him as we, as we stay close to him. As we, John 15 says, as we abide with him. One of the main ways we abide with him is through prayer. In conversation with him. And listening for him. Do you have time where you're setting aside to listen Hopefully, your 2 Thessalonians 5, 17 is you're praying all the time without ceasing. But do you have the time where you're just sitting there? Maybe it is when you are laying awake at night and you cannot sleep. Testimony. Good time for prayer. Good time for prayer. So praying is a form of worship. It's not just for you. It is giving glory to God. Number three, proclaim his deeds among the people. Proclaim his deeds among the people. Two main aspects, I think, to this. One is through missions. And that is primarily taking the gospel to people who haven't heard it. Specifically, and most importantly, those who have never had the opportunity to hear even the name of Jesus. And one of the things that we're going to focus on more as a church is how we can help in getting the gospel to people who've never had opportunity to even hear it. But there's also another aspect of this, and this is ministry. Ministry is what we do among people. Some of you, and I want to thank you, some of you had the opportunity to come last week to Chester Frost as we were ministering among the jet ski community. Some of you had good gospel conversations. We have had good gospel conversations. And taking the gospel to these people, that's a, that is a ministry to them. It is giving witness to who God is and what he has done. God is glorified in that. We have the privilege of doing that. And I hope that you are engaging in that yourself. Number four, sing to him. I won't slow down here on on sing to him. Because we do it a lot. You know, we we come every Sunday and we we sing. 
question is, why do we do that? Why does the Bible say sing to the Lord so many times? What is the big deal about singing? Why is singing different than just what I'm doing or what we do when we talk to each other? When you think about sing, or when you think about music, you get in the car or you got a favorite. Who's got a favorite song in here? Anybody? Raise your hand if you have a favorite song. It's, don't be shy. Most of us do. You got a favorite song. Why do you like that song? Generally because it does something to you, does something for you. It, it, sometimes it is a song from the 80s, like me, before many of you were born. The 80s, when it just kind of, ah, oh, that nostalgia, stop laughing down here. Is that nostalgia where it's just like, ah, oh, those were good times, man. Some, some is for some other special occasion, a wedding or something like that. It stirs within you something from your soul, something from who you are on the inside. When we sing to the Lord, we're making a connection. All right, so I can tell you a lot of information. I can tell you what the Bible says, and you can retain that. Most, you know what I mean, you, you, some better than others. But you can remember that. You can take it into your head, and that's good and fine. And we know the truth. We need to be founded on the truth. But if we simply just recite the truth to each other, we just talk about the truth. And again, place for that. But in singing, you are connecting your head to your heart. So you're connecting the truth in your head, what you know to be true, with the passion in your heart. Singing, that's, that's why we love, you know, as music, these crescendos happen, it starts to build and we get this magnificent feeling from the music. We want to sing louder. We want to sing stronger. There's something within us that has to come out. That's what it's supposed to be. Now, we can sit here and we can sing and there's no passion and we're singing like all we're doing is thinking. But if we're connecting that with our heart and we, we feel what, is tr- what we know to be true, our affections for God start to come out in the music. That's why, that's one of the great reasons why we are told to sing because there is something strong about that. That's why <coughs> in heaven right now, there are songs being sung to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right? And you better believe there's passion and music going on. And when you see God face to face, I can imagine just either melting in a pile of tears in gratitude or singing to the top of your lungs. Why don't we try to emulate that here now as people of God who have had the Son of God revealed to us? How amazing that is. Number five, tell of his wondrous works. Now this is a little bit different than what I talked about proclaiming the deeds of, of God. This is essentially, these are gospel conversations. So it certainly would include talking to people who don't know Jesus, but it's also us talking to each other. Talking to each other. Having gospel conversations to each other. It is reminding each other of God's goodness. It's reminding that we have been blessed. I meet with somebody just about every week. Come a dear friend. I can know. Every single time when I walk in and I sit down with him, he's going to say, what's God teaching you this week? What's God been showing you this week? And so I've kind of conditioned myself to be, I need to be thinking what God has done in my life. You know, what has he done? But that is the kind of thing that spurs us on, right? If we kind of got into that habit of saying, hey, what's God doing in your life? And we knew that that was good. That will help to trigger you to count the things that God has done for you what God is doing in your life. That is a form of worship because we're declaring to each other 
God's glory in gospel conversations. So I would challenge you to do that. David Delmont challenged you last week if you were here. He said, I want you to read through Psalm 104 every day this week. And then I want you to come into each other and, and to start talking about what has God shown you in Psalm 104. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. But it doesn't have to be that specific. It certainly should be. But just what is God doing in your life? How is God blessing you? How can what God is doing in your life be a blessing as people hear and are able to celebrate with you? Or they hear and they're able to weep with you. The sharing, that's all part of gospel conversations. It's not just all the good stuff. It's here's the challenges and how we can point each other back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, right? So we're pointing each other back to Jesus. Sixthly, it says, honor your holy name. A lot of different directions you could probably go with that. But I think in a nutshell, honoring his holy name is putting him first. You will have no other gods before me. That can be part of those gospel conversations. It's helping us put God first. Having that godly accountability with each other where if we're just kind of focused on this one thing, we say, hey, is that, is that in its proper, proper space? If it is, great. God's being honored through that. If it's not and it's starting to take the place of God, that's of the devil. Right? That's, what, that's what Satan always wants to do. He always wants to divert our attention to all the shiny things or all the things that we can so focus on that we crowd God out of the picture rather than bringing God in the center of the picture and seeing that thing that we enjoy put in a proper perspective. Now God is honored in what we're doing in putting him first and what we're doing that we enjoy so much. We've got to make sure that we're worshiping God in our lives, in our priorities, what we're doing all the rest of the time. Seventh, rejoice in him. Now rejoicing in God is often the natural result of the counting of your blessings or, uh, or the gospel conversations we have. As we think about these things, it can lead to a rejoicing, a spontaneous rejoicing. There's a song that came out several years ago, and I'm not crazy about the source of it, but I've always liked this song, and it goes like this. When I think about the Lord, when I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and turned me around, how he placed my feet on solid ground, it makes me want to shout hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all of the praise. That is what thinking about the Lord, talking about the Lord should do. Cause us to rejoice. Are we thinking about the Lord? Are we talking about the Lord? Are we focusing on him such that we are drawn into worship in one way or another? Number eight, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face, always. So there's two parts of that. One is you seek the Lord always. You rely on him all the time. God is honored as we submit to him and say, Lord, I need you. Then God is in his rightful place. We are needy. He is the one who gives. He is the grantor of everything that is good and perfect. Anything that is good, it comes from God. And so if I'm in a fix, if I'm struggling, Ah, God doesn't have time for that. No, God is the one I need to go to. He's the one who wants to hear. He wants to be the provider. He wants to be the father to you. Let him by going to him. But 
You don't just always go to him. It's not always about what can you do for me. It's always gimme, 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 gimme. But they're seeking his face. God, I want to see you. That's what Moses said when he was on the mountain. God, I want to see your glory. He didn't ask for something. He didn't ask for anything. It wasn't, God, give me this. There was enough of that. But he said, I want to see your glory. I want to see you. I want you. Are you at that place in your life where you just want Jesus? God, I want to see your face. I want to have that kind of intimacy. I want that kind of fellowship. I want that kind of relationship with you. So I want to seek you. I'm seeking your face, Lord. I want to see, I want to know, would you reveal to me? Would you pull me into that kind of relationship where we're walking hand in hand and I'm seeing your, I'm seeing your glory. I'm experiencing your presence. Seek his Seek his, his help, but seek his face. Ninth, remember his wondrous, I'm sorry, remember his wondrous works. Remember his wondrous works. Now, this is not just the stuff he's done for me. Right? I can do that and that's good. Here's all the things God has done for me. But we're talking about his works, like David talked last week in Psalm 104. The grandeur of his works, works that only God can do. His creation, salvation, so redemption and sanctification and ultimately glorification. Those are all the works of his hands. How he has redeemed humanity through Christ. Remember those things and as we remember it, it will will incite worship in our souls. So these are are nine things that he gave us to to focus on to make sure that we're, we're worshiping. And to try to understand the breadth of worship, what all is involved, what can be. You might kind of be stuck in one way. This is the way I worship. Well, then Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, tells us, this is the way I want to be honored. This is the way I want to be worshipped in all of these ways. And so we start to see just the, the complexity and the glory that is involved in worship. Now, we can worship and we can rejoice because God is faithful. What he says he'll do, he'll do. And that's what we get through uh, verses 7 through 15. First of all, we've got the power. Why? Why can we trust that God will bring about the things that he said he's going to do? Why do we know that he is faithful? Verse 7, he follows by saying, "He, He is the Lord our God. His judgments govern the whole earth. God's judgments govern the whole earth. And so if he governs and reigns over the entire earth, there is nothing outside his power and control. Nothing. Yeah, but this thing right here, mm -mm. nothing outside his control. He's either sovereign or he's nothing. He's either sovereign Lord or he's nothing. This He's Lord over this. He has control over this, but not over that. That is is a heresy from, from Satan. He's either sovereign over all, even that, whatever's in your mind, even that, or he's not at all. But we also see ways in which God has brought this to mind. And and just listen to some of the language, starting with verse verse 8. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he ordained for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham swore to Isaac and confirmed, that's an important word, confirmed to Jacob as a decree 
and to Israel as a permanent covenant. So again, I'm going to stop right there. Remember where I opened with this. Who is, in, who is included in that covenant? Yeah, that one. The Old Testament that led to the New. The Old Covenant that led to the New Covenant. That's still us. Because it's all based on faith. Right? So, he says, This is a permanent covenant. I will give the land to Canaan to you as your inherited portion. When they were a few in number, very few indeed, and resident aliens in Canaan, wandering from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their behalf. Do not touch my anointed ones or harm my prophets. So it's a big deal. So he established a covenant. He said, I will never, ever break it. I will keep it. It is a permanent covenant. And then we get to see some things that God did to demonstrate His seriousness of it. The fact that he is going to carry it out. He will do what he said he will do. Now I'm going to tell you, words don't mean a whole lot to me. I'm going to let you in a little secret. Words don't mean all that much. Because sometimes, maybe maybe you understand where I'm coming from. Sometimes you're told, hey, I'll do this for you. I'll give you this. I'll do blah, blah, blah. Just doesn't seem to materialize. You know what I'm saying? It's like, hmm, I was kind of counting on that. Didn't come through. Okay, I understand now. That happens enough, you kind of start saying, okay, I don't really care what you tell me. I care what you do. It matters what you do, right? So if you're one who says, hey, I'll do this for you, you don't do it. I'll do this for you, you don't do it. I'll do this for For long, it's just like, why don't you just stop talking, <laughs> right? Let's just, let's just stop that because it just makes things worse. But if you either say you're going to do something and then you do it, or you just do it. And that's a pattern. I'm going to absolutely, I'm going to say, hey, so-and-so said they were going to do that. It's as good as done because they stick to their word. If they say they're going to do it, they do it. We have a God who has said it and done it. He has proven himself over and over that he is faithful. So if you're having a tough time believing that God is going to be faithful in that situation, look at what he's done. He even says that. He tells us to look at what he's done. Look at the way he has moved and taken care of things, how he's delivered. And know that if he promises, he will deliver. And he has promised and he will deliver. But then we get another little aspect of this. We get God's sovereignty and faithfulness to his covenant through trials. Through trials. Verses 16 to 22. So what I want you to understand about this, and what I think you know, I hope you know, is that God doesn't just work in trials and through trials. His plan doesn't just simply work through those. It includes them. It includes them. So God doesn't just see that things happen and make the best of it. Sometimes God causes it. And again, this is, this is going to maybe challenge what you believe about God, but I've already been talking about this already. Right? God uses and causes many bad things in our lives because he's, he's wanting us to get to a place. You see that in Job. You see that in Joseph. Oh, wait, Joseph, who's that? Oh, we got it right here. Look at what it says. Verse 16, he called down famine against the land and destroyed the entire food supply. That is not good. Famine isn't good. Causing this 
destruction of all the food. That's not good. Right? It's like people need to eat. What are you doing? Destroying all the food. He had sent a man ahead of them. All right? So he's got somebody he sent ahead. There's a famine that God caused in his sovereignty. In his sovereign goodness, he caused it. And then he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph. Yay, Joseph is going ahead of him. (laughs) Who was sold as a slave. Uh, You don't see prophets that are sold as slaves generally, would you? I mean, there are people who speak for God. But it says in verse 18, They hurt his feet with shackles. His neck was put in an iron collar until the time his prediction came true. So God sent Joseph. So God caused famine. God sends Joseph through slavery. And that was part of the plan. It didn't just happen. It was what God ordained. And then look at what what it says next. The word of the Lord tested him. So verse 19 fully reads, Until the time his prediction came true, the word of the Lord tested him. And then we see the results from there. The king sent for him and released him. The ruler of peoples set him free. He made him master over his household, ruler over all his possessions, binding his officials at will and instructing his elders. When we see the whole picture of Joseph's life, then we can look at it and say, yeah, God sent him. God sent him to bring about part of his plan of redemption. And it was all good. It was all what God had intended, what God wanted to. It says that God tested him. Now, testing is not to reveal to God something about the situation or you. It's usually meant to reveal something about you to you and then also to prepare you for something that God has. That's what we see in Joseph's life, right? It it was revealed who Joseph was even when Potiphar tried to make advances on him. Joseph had to make a decision. I've been put in a pretty high situation. I've been slave. I've done the slavery route. I did that thing. I don't like it. So now I'm in a place of power and, and respect and trust. So it would be really easy for Joseph to say, I'm going to compromise a little here because I really want to stay here. And God can certainly use me more like this than back in prison. But instead, Joseph, because this is who Joseph was, he took his relationship with God very seriously. He couldn't, he couldn't bring dishonor on the name of God by giving into this. So he, she comes at him, grabs his coat. He like slips out of it and takes off. She's left with the coat, gets him in trouble. He's in trouble again. But it showed who Joseph was. But it also prepared him for what was to come. This whole thing prepared him for what was to come. God provided for his people. We see this in verses 39 to 44. God provided for his people, but he used the wilderness as the preparation for the promise. He provided all these things to sustain them, but, but the wilderness was not easy. But it was to prepare them. I think of my own life, probably the greatest example of my preparation in the wilderness was the year and a half before I came here, where God prepared me for what was going to be here when I came so that I could be more confident in trusting him so that I can know that God will take you into the wilderness, but he will also lead you into a promised land. He will also bring about his purpose. And so what I would say to you, when you go through testing, not if, but when, 
or if you have, whatever, maybe you're in it now. It may sound crazy, but embrace it. Embrace it because God is doing so. Why? Because he keeps his promise. I can't see it. It doesn't matter if you can't see it. God keeps his promise. Worship him through contentment in the wilderness. Worship him by taking what comes at you and feeding it back to God and waiting on him to do in and through you what he has planned. It's not haphazard. It is planned. So hold on to that. Embrace it. It's not, you know, I'm going to have some power of positive thinking and I'm going to have a good attitude through this. That's originated in you and it will fail. But if you take it back to God and you say, Lord, I am, I'm going to sit here and wait on you. I'm going to do what I know you call me to do now. I'm going to seek your face. Because with his face comes guidance. With his face comes the comfort of knowing that he got you. He's got you. So you cannot lose. That does not mean that you won't end up in jail. (laughs) That does not mean that you won't end up in situations where you you could compromise. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be painful. But it does mean that it will be completed. It will be completed because God does not leave anything left undone that he ordains. And he guides and cares for his kids, those who are under the covenant through Jesus. Hang on, but don't just survive. Flourish. Flourish. I mean, embrace the grace that comes your way. Because if he takes you there, he will take care of you there. And that's a promise, not mine, but the word of God. So he does that. And if I have not made this clear enough, it's all him. It's all him. Look at 23 to 38. Look at how God did his thing. Then Israel went to Egypt. Jacob lived as an alien in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them more numerous than their foes, whose hearts he turned to hate his people and to deal deceptively with his servants. There again, is God's plan working. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his miraculous signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and it became dark. For, uh, for did they not defy his commands? He turned their water into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land was overrun with frogs, even in their royal chambers. He spoke and insect came, gnats throughout their country. He gave them all uh, a hail for rain and lightning throughout their land. He struck their vines and trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and lo- locusts came, young locusts without number. They devoured all the vegetation in the land and consumed the produce of their land. He struck the firstborn uh, all their pro- all their first progeny. Then he brought Israel out, and there's a focus. And he brought Israel out with Israel uh, with silver and gold, and no one among his tribes stumbled. Egypt was glad when they left, for the dread of Israel had fallen on them. Everything that is said there, he did it. God did it all. It is God's solitary work of deliverance. God's plan is God's plan. In all of its complexity, God's plan is God's plan. He does not want you to help. He will not take your help. Now, does that mean there's nothing for you to do? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But even when it's 
When you are called to do something, it is God who is strengthening you. It is God who is giving you hope. It is God who is giving you strength. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. (laughs) The next verse. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Even when God calls me to do something, it is his strength in which I do it or I don't. Even when God tells me to do something, I do it and it's a success. It's for God's glory because it's God who gave it. It's God who called me. It's God who fulfilled it. Without him, we can do nothing. So God's work is God's work. And for me, that gives me great comfort. Because it's like God calls us to some difficult things. God calls us to some painful things. God calls us to things that we cannot do, that we cannot overcome. The Lord doesn't give us more than we can handle. What? Are you living in this world? The Lord does often give you more than you can handle, but he never gives you more than he can handle through you. What God calls you to, he will get you through. So don't go, oh, I got If it's coming in my path, I can handle it. Okay, there's a lot, there's way too much I. If there's one I in there, that's too many. Well, there's a lot coming into my life, but God can handle this. God is enough. God plus nothing is everything. So trust him, trust him. And then finally, we get God's purpose in his work. Why is all this why is all this here? What's the big deal about all of this? And in verse 45, all of this happened. Everything that we've just covered, everything that has just been recounted, all of this happened so that they might keep his statutes and obey his instructions. Hallelujah. So we get all that, and it sounds like he did all this so we could be better people. So we could obey better. So we could do a good job at being God's people. There's the rest of the story. And of course, we have to understand that. And we have to understand that we are not called to good. We're not called by good works. We're called to good works, right? So when we're talking about about keeping God's commands, about following him closely. That is not, of course, what saves us. And there are a lot of people, man, I've been spending a lot of time with a lot of people over the summer who believe very much that it's all about you being a good person. I'm going to heaven because I'm, I'm basically good. I try to do good things. I try to do more good things than I do bad things. And all that means is you're good and lost. You know, I mean, But we're told very clearly, for you are saved by grace through faith. We circle all the way back to the belief that we talked about. Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace through faith and that's not your work. That faith is not from you. It's a gift of God, not from works. If there's anything I can do, I've just earned it. Not from works, so that no one can boast. He eliminates that completely. 
And then, right after saying that, right after saying, it's by grace you're saved through works, I mean through faith, that's not of yourself, so that no one can boast, he then turns around in the next verse and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So there is this process of being saved by faith alone, nothing else. Not your good works, not the stuff that you can do, not the stuff that you think that you're worthy of being saved for. You're saved apart from all of that. It is grace and grace alone. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And the more I understand how little I deserve this, which is like zero, nothing, 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 then the more glory and honor Jesus gets, right? Which is what is required. For him to get the glory. But once that happens, then we're saved to good works. Right? So that's the process of me following Jesus, seeking his face and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? What are you calling me to? I want to be like you. I want to go where you go. I want to do what you do. I want to think like you think. Right? Because there are good works for us to do as the hands and the feet of Jesus once we're saved. And so all of this happened in the Psalms that we read so that by faith we could be saved and fulfill God's purpose for our life. To do what he has called us to do, which is to fellowship with him. I'm going to close with 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and following. This is the message. John is, John is making an incredible declaration. John, the, the disciple, the apostle of Jesus He says, this is the message that we have heard from him. So we heard it. We're going to declare this to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, live our lives in the darkness. God is light, no darkness in him. We're going to live our life in the darkness. If we say this, if we say we have fellowship and yet walk in the darkness, we're lying and are not participating in the truth, or practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the question that I'm going to leave you is where are you walking? Where are you walking and whose power are you doing it? If you're walking in darkness, so so you see it matters how you live, not for salvation, but for sanctification, And John says glorification. Because if you keep living like you did before you were saved and nothing's changed, then probably nothing's changed. But as you trust in Jesus and he begins to transform you, then the thoughts, the desires, the actions begin to change. It may not be 100% and and you probably won't. Because sanctification is a process. So if like something massive didn't happen, that you're like Paul, who like totally went the different direction. Like, that didn't happen to me. I've been struggling. Struggle is part of it. So don't get discouraged by the struggle. But you need to get, to get serious if you're still walking in darkness. If you're walking contrary to Christ. If you're not walking where he is, where you know he would walk. And living like you know he calls you to live. Which is not moralism. It's just following him. That's the process of growing. Where are you walking? Where are you walking? 
How are you walking? Who are you worshiping? And how are you worshiping? You've got a lot of opportunity to worship all the times of your life. The question is, are we doing that? Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for the revelation that the that the, the gospel story has been going since you spoke it, uh, since before that, since you, before you created the world. But, but Lord, as even what you spoke to Abraham, that Abrahamic covenant applies to us because that was the declaration that Jesus is coming. And then we see all through your word the process through which you led people so that you brought about your incarnation in Christ at just the right time. Fulfilling the covenant, fulfilling the promise that you made to Abraham and fulfilling the promise that we all get as we trust and believe in Jesus, Lord. May you be honored and glorified, Lord, as we, as we think on these things, reflect on these things as they should elicit worship in our lives. I pray, Father, that even as we sing, we're about to sing, Lord, that we would sing truly with the truth that is in our head connecting with the passion that is in our heart, Lord, and that we would lift up your name with great glory and honor. And I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing.